Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Well, today we start a brand new sermon series. I'm excited to get into it with you, and it is entitled Being the Church. And what we're going to be doing for the next four weeks is walking through the book of Titus. Paul has written a letter to his friend Titus, and we're going to get into it and just sort of unpack it a little bit uh, each week as we go. Um, What we say around here is you uh, don't go to church. So if you think you came to church today, that's fine, but I disagree. I don't think you go to church. I think you are the church wherever you go. The church is not a building. The church is not an organization. The church is a living, breathing organism. It's a dynamic organism of those who find themselves in Christ coming together and living out the Christ life on earth. And so in Paul's letter to Titus, he gives uh, clear ideas on how to build the church, how to be the church, and how to organize the local church in a culture of opposition, which is helpful for us because I don't know if you know this, but on occasion we live in a culture of opposition to the teachings of Christ. The last few weekends, I don't know what you've been doing, but the weather's been getting a little better. I've been working in the yard. We've been doing those things that you do when winter is over and spring is on the horizon. You start cleaning up your yard. Uh, We've been doing the yard cleanup. We've been, you know, getting the beds all cleaned out and adding the fresh mulch. We're doing all the things. And, And we only know how to do any of these things because someone taught us. And so when my wife is looking at various plants that are doing better than others, or what should I put here, or how do I do this, she has an annual, she basically has an annual meeting with her friend Sharon, and Sharon walks her through, um, what about this, and let's go look at that, and yeah, what about this, and, and they just go through it. My wife doesn't know anything about gardening except what's been taught to her by someone who knows a lot more than she does. The same is true for home improvement projects. We're kind of constantly working on this and working on that. I don't know if you may have heard me say this before. I'm not your guy for home improvement projects. Um, Handy will not be on my resume, but we have smart people and wise people around us who will come to us and say, hey, you're going to want to do this every so often and don't forget to check this thing and keep this updated and maintain this and let's improve that. And so we have these people in our lives who are also downloading that information to us as well. I mean, there's a half dozen people I can see right now who have been in my basement helping me with various things that I, I just sort of stand back and I go, can I get you a drink? Um, which is great because I don't know how to do it, but others do and they're teaching me. And so now, you know, if you've been in my basement helping me before, maybe you haven't been in a while and that's because you maybe taught me. And now I know how to tighten this down and I know how to mess with that and I'm learning as I go. This is what Paul is doing for Titus as we open the book of Titus. Paul is in a sense giving Titus instruction. He's giving him wisdom. He's giving him kind of the blueprint for what does it mean to build a church? What does it mean to create a local network of healthy bodies that make up the larger body of Christ? And so we're just going to jump right in. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. The scripture says this, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of our God, our Savior, that's a long sentence, to Titus. That's Paul's introduction. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Paul is saying, here's who I am, 
and here's who I'm writing to. That's all we get when we start. We say, okay, what there's some context then. So what is Paul writing to Titus? Why is he writing to Titus? What do we learn from even that first introduction? First is the context. Uh, Titus is a Greek Christian. He's a Gentile that has been converted to Jesus's way. We've been preaching the way for, um, we did 43 weeks of the way, and it was just walking through the book of Luke. Well, that was Jesus establishing his kingdom of heaven on earth and inviting people to join in. Well, Titus is one of those who's joined in, and now he's a Greek Christian living on the Isle of Crete. And let me show you a picture of the Isle of Crete. Yeah, I mean, I got called to Northwest Ohio. (laughs) Titus is rocking out in Crete. That doesn't seem right. It's a strategic location. It's a beautiful island off the Greek coast. It's in the Mediterranean Sea. There's lots of people in and out of Crete. Crete's kind of a transitory place because it's this island. It serves as a loading point or an in-between point, a waypoint between multiple different countries and cultures. And so it has kind of this really mixed vibe about it. A lot of hustling, a lot of desire for possessions and wealth. There's Greeks and Jews. There's religious and irreligious. Some are worshiping Zeus. Others are worshiping Yahweh. And Cretans are mentioned at Pentecost. So you're like, Cretans, are they mentioned? There's Cretans in Jerusalem at Pentecost. So like Cretans are a people that are out there and they're mixing in with all the other people and they're kind of a known people. One thing they were known for was corruption and dishonesty. The part where, where Paul says in his introduction, the God who never lies, like he's, he's representing God who never lies. Partially this is because the Cretans were known for their like wild dishonesty. And so... Uh, have you maybe even heard someone, have you ever heard someone called a Cretan? I've heard that term before, like, oh, that, that Cretan. And you're like, what does that even mean? It goes back to this culture where somebody who is disreputable and dishonest, it's like kind of like no morals. They just go for whatever they want. That's where that comes from. The main religion in Crete was money and possession. And it didn't matter how you got them. So a Greek historian from the second century, uh, Polybius, said this about his own people. He said, And in fact, greed and avarice are so native in the soil in Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches to any sort of gain, whatever. As in, the ends justify the means for these people. Their God and their religion is personal gain and status and possession. They'll stop at nothing, and they have no shame at what it takes to get there. You read that however you want. I read that not so dissimilarly from our own culture. Money and possessions and greed and envy and the ends justify the means. If you think about it, the people who are of the highest status in our culture, are they the people of highest virtue? That great teacher or that nonprofit worker or that philanthropist, the people of greatest status in our culture, the celebrities, politicians, the business people, what do they have? They have celebrity. They have wealth. They have fame. They have influence, but those become our virtues. Our virtues in America as a culture are that. Not the things that we would list as what we would desire for us or our children in our lives. Those aren't the virtues that we hold up. We just say, do you have power? Do you have money? Do you have wealth? Do you have influence? If so, you are now a celebrity. And so whether that's Elon Musk or the Kardashians or however you want to look at how this goes, their virtue is based in celebrity and not the other way around. This is interesting to me because Paul then deputizes Titus in that sort of culture to go out and sort out a church network of sorts. There's all these, you know, church isn't what we think of as church. We think of churches as 
well, there's this big church, and there's that church, and there's this denomination, and that denomination. And church in this time was a series of local houses of people in this body and that body and this neighborhood and that neighborhood who met together and tried to follow the way of Jesus. And so he sends them this letter for how to do it. And he starts the letter after he introduces himself by laying out qualifications for leaders. This is where we're going to spend the most time today. So we'll pick up Titus chapter 1, verse 5. He says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's quite a list. And those are the virtues being aimed for as Paul leaves Titus to sort out the local church. A male, husband of one wife, children of general obedience and belief, above reproach, which is essentially not easily accused, not leaving them open to accusation because they're living a life on the fringe, not arrogant or quick-tempered, not drunk, violent, greedy, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, holy, disciplined, lover of truth, good doctrine, and able to share it if needed. And that final sentence, and to rebuke those who might share falsely. These are people, Paul has said, that need to be able to hold the line on what is true. To not be swayed by the, the, the tide of the day. To not be taken by the cultural movement of the day. Hold the line on what is true. So Paul, writing to Titus, who exists in a culture not that different from ours, says you need leaders, Titus. You need leaders to oversee and to organize of a certain type with certain quality, to protect the body, to hold it to account, to keep the system in check, to make sure that truth is being taught. And sometimes we ask, why why did God design the church this way? Like, why this way? The construction becomes more evident as we investigate the church. If If we do agree that it's a local body, the church is a body, that we're all members of a body, pinky toes and, and noses, and, but we're all part of a, a whole that we function together and we function best when we are together in unity and harmony and health, then, then we, let's make a, a, a nice metaphor to our actual bodies, to an individual body. If you wanted to, let's say you wanted to get in shape, you want to lose weight, get your body in shape, beach body season, here it comes. If you haven't started, it's too late. Try next year. <laughs> Just saying. When I, when I was a missionary in Africa in 2004, I was gone for basically a year, and one of the people, uh, was my best friends, his name was Matt. Still his name, Matt. And Matt was, a, Matt was a big guy. And when I left for Africa, he was a big guy, and he prayed for me as I left. It's 2004, so we're not like Snapchatting each other or whatever people are doing. We, there was none of that. I got an email or two or a letter or two from one or two people, but it was sort of like you know, we'll see you in a year. I came back and there's sort of like a welcome wagon. I don't know what that actually means, if there was an actual wagon, but there was a welcome wagon. There's people, there's a party, there's a, hey, he's home. And Matt's one of the first people to welcome me home. And Matt looked like Matt's little brother when I got home. Matt went from Matt to Matt minus about a fifth grader. And I just, I couldn't believe it. Like, it's the only thing I remember from the, like, the month where I got home from, um, 
living in Africa for a year, and I, I said, Matt, how did you do it? And Matt said, well, I mean, it's not that hard. I was like, not that hard? He goes, well, super hard. But the thing that made it not that hard is he said, I joined a gym, and I got a personal trainer. And I went, well, what does that have to do with anything? You still have to do the work. He goes, yeah, but I joined the gym, so I'm, I put my money where my mouth was. And then I got a trainer who would, you know, knock me around three times a week whenever I showed up and made sure I did it in between when I didn't see him. So I paid him a lot of money to make sure that I did what I said I wanted to do. And as a result, here I am. And as long as I have somebody overseeing me, as long as I have somebody holding me accountable, I'm in incredible shape. I feel as better, better than I've ever felt in my life. And for the next few years, Matt would go in and out of that you know, he would vacillate between previous Matt and new Matt whenever he had a trainer or didn't. And it was, could it be this job? Could it be this stress? Could it be this season? Could it be this? And it was always, no, no, no. Did I have accountability and did I have somebody who was holding me to it? Did I have an overseer for my physical health in my life? See, getting healthy takes effort and it takes people to check in regularly. Anybody getting healthy in anything, in any way, mental health, emotional health, physical health, you have to have people that are walking with you in it. You have to have people checking in with you. People make sure you're not falling victim to a harmful fad or a false teaching. What would make a bad trainer? A bad overseer of Matt's health or yours. What if your trainer showed up drunk to your lessons? Not real help. Like you don't have a lot of faith in that person to lead you well when they can't see straight and they're trying to tell you what to do. Undisciplined, arrogant, impatient, greedy, violent, lacking self-control. None of those people are going to make great trainers, are they? No, you would need people with integrity, the trainer who practices what they preach. Then you have the best chance to thrive. That would make the most sense. You'd be so much more likely to be successful. And what if you could afford more than one? So when that one was out sick or when they decided to move to a different city or when they, whatever, you had backups and you had others and you have a whole group of trainers that were there to make sure you're your best self. That sounds a little bit ridiculous until you hear that LeBron James spends over a million dollars a year just on his body. He, has, he literally has over a million dollars a year he pays for people to keep him healthy, to make sure he's healthy, to oversee his health, and in the equipment and in the humans that are running his life, he spends a million dollars a year, which makes a ton of sense because he makes 40 just for basketball. And there's probably another 50 or 100 on endorsements and all the other things. So as long as he's relevant, that $1 million he spends, that, that's a pretty good investment in his wealth. But the genius of his team is that it's a team. That one can't submarine him by giving him some weird diet. One can't go off the reservation and create some wrong health direction for him. There's a whole team that's there to hold him. Healthy, qualified people. So Paul is saying to Titus, if you want a healthy local body, build a team of healthy, qualified people to help the local church stay in gospel shape to help the local church be encouraged and equipped. Get some qualified, healthy people to oversee it. The church of Jesus is more likely to survive the storms of humanity and thrive in kingdom living with the hands of many humble, disciplined, truth-loving people. It's a high bar of qualifications that we read through the list. It's a high bar. Some churches go, I need more than one of those. That's fair. Others would say, you know what? That's not really how the world works anymore, though. Like, why not have a strong leader, one, singular? Why not have a CEO type? Like a corporate CEO style, maybe a board of directors. On occasion, they'll hold them accountable, but maybe that would work. Why don't we do that? And all you have to do is read the news in the recent years and see how many tragic stories 
of churches failing and falling apart on the, the missteps of a singular leader. The celebrity pastor has become its own genre. Build your influence, get famous, write a book, speaking tour, become a millionaire, friends with Justin Bieber. That's how that works. And then the pastor who was friends with Justin Bieber is found out to be living a double life and more concerned with celebrity than anything else. And I'm not judging him because we all have our flaws. But you look around and church after church after church that's built around a singular leader has fallen. Because of one person's wayward vision, one person's blind spots. Hillsong uh, had a church in Dallas. Hillsong, the music people who have an Australian church, who have a New York City church, who have an LA church. They had a, a church in Dallas with the people who helped start Hillsong New York City. And when it came out that the pastor and his wife in Dallas were misappropriating funds and had all these allegations against them, not only did Hillsong Dallas not have them employed anymore, Hillsong Dallas shut down. It just didn't exist anymore. Someone's local faith community just went away because it was built around singular leaders. So why not then a decentralized structure of committees and clubs? Why not something more egalitarian, like paid and unpaid? Men and women, let's just get a bunch of committees and clubs together. We'll, we'll do it that way. And that's a great way to kill a church too. There's a story that's a true story that a, a consultant taught me as he went from church to church and was helping revitalize churches that were kind of on the way down. And this happens, life cycles in churches. This is how this works. And there was one church that uh, still wanted to use hymnals. And they didn't want to go to the projector. Remember the projector with the clear slides? If you're like under 35, we'll go to a museum. I'll show you one. You can Google it. And someone was in charge of changing out the slides on the projector to project the words onto a screen. This church didn't even want to go there. They were dominated by their, uh, this is 20 years ago, by 70s and 80s, these, these people in their older years that said, we don't want to change. That doesn't feel godly. We only want to use hymnals. And there was a whole younger generation that said, can we just move to the projector? Forget screens and computers and all the things that make it easier for us to worship. Can we just, can we just have the projector? And they said, no, we want to stay with hymnals. And what they essentially said is the consultant tells the story is they said, we would rather die as we are based on our personal preferences than grow based on the wisdom of somebody else. And so the church died. As their members died, the church died with it because the worship committee refused. This isn't anything against hymnals. If you want hymnals, we'll add hymnals. We won't add those. The point is a body without a head doesn't get very far. And so this idea, the decentralized idea, let's just have a bunch of committees and clubs, that's great, except that the body without a head doesn't really get very far on mission. So then we say, what about just a strong, like a, like a leader? Why not like the dictator, like, you know, Pastor Putin, if we will? He's in the news a little bit. I mean, atrocities aside, what he's been able to do as a leader in rallying people and organizing a country that was sort of on the way down and creating this power structure and creating this force, um, in one sense, in a leadership sense, super impressive. On a moral and how is he using it sense, pretty horrifying. The problem is, though, what he has done is created a cult of personality, there's a cult of personality, and it all rests on his personality. What happens as the person at the center of the cult of personality fades or fails? When the person falls short, the cult falls apart. If it's built on a cult of personality, that's what happens. And you know these names, whether it's Haggard or Hybels, or if it's Hillsong Church or Mars Hill Church, whenever we build something around a singular personality, that cult of personality dies when the person fails. 
I had a friend who worked at Mars Hill Church during its implosion. I worked with him in San Antonio. He took a job in Seattle, and he was the theological editor for Mars Hill. And as it died, he just went, this is the worst. And this church splintered into all these other smaller churches, independent churches, and he thought, this will be great. And then about a year ago, I got another phone call from him, and he said, we've just built miniature Mars Hills, and it's all happening again, just one at a time. When we live in that world, that doesn't work either. So Paul's prescription is a plurality of leaders, a plurality of leaders, sort of a web of worthy shepherds that become a safety net for the local church. So the role of an elder in the early church was to be, uh, was sort of a vetting process because you didn't have a pastor who was on the staff who got paid, who preached every week. In the early church, in the small churches, you'd have a a rabbi, a a Jesus-loving rabbi come in and he would teach. And this would happen in synagogues for those who didn't believe in Jesus and for those who, who were part of the way. You would have a rotating teachers come through. The rabbi would come through with his students. He would teach. And it was up to the elders to sit in the front row and judge whether what the rabbi said was true or false because there was so much false teaching. We didn't have mass knowledge of singular texts where we're all on the same page with everything. Things kind of got squirrely fast. And the elders, their job was to hold the line of truth, to keep false teaching from spreading. Paul warns a lot against false teaching in his writings. There's a reason. And not much has changed. The culture still wars against the message of Christ today. Religion still obscures grace with legalism. We're going to talk a lot about that next week, about these two different headwinds we're facing, both culture and religion, fighting against Christ. But God ordered that there would be overseers, and he said, watch out for the lies and overwhelm people with truth. That's basically the formula. The elders of a church are to stand as counterpoints to the cultural leaders of the day. So some will fairly ask, why only men, though? It's 2022. That's a fair question. Why only men? A husband of one wife. Why a man? Uh, Kathy Keller wrote a book that I would recommend to you. I'll put it on the screen so you can see it. It's called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. And Kathy Keller is the wife of Tim Keller, who was the pastor in New York City, wrote a lot of books. Kathy Keller grew up in a, in a, a home that was fully egalitarian, meaning everybody's the same, everybody has the same abilities, everybody has the same uh, trajectories, everybody has the same roles, man, woman, doesn't matter. We're all going to be like, anybody can do anything for any reason. And she said it was really hard for her to square this. She, she wrestles with this very text in that book where she's saying, it's really hard for me to square the idea, and I didn't like the idea, that God said men were set aside to be elders. And she went to Gordon Conwell uh, Theological Seminary. She got her master's there, and she said the thing that really got her was the more she read the text and the more she read the Greek behind the text and the more that she, in, you know, went through the cultures, more she went into the context, she couldn't escape the fact that the Bible was very clear that it's men. And she said, I don't have to like it, but I have to honor the fact that God organized it this way. And it isn't up to, and she said, I, sometimes I still don't like it. Sometimes I still go, but why did you do it this way? But she said, this is where the scripture leads her. And and so what she sort of did is she twisted the question for herself. And I think it's helpful for us because it's a larger question for us as we look at the whole of scripture. So we'll talk about men as elders, but this is, if you want to zoom out, you can apply this to any other cultural flashpoint regarding scripture. The question was not about gender, but about trust. Before I get into that, let me be clear and make a statement on women and covenant, just so you hear me. We affirm both men and women are created in the image of God, fully. 
Women are of equal value, equal giftedness, equal capacity, equal worth, equal dignity in the church, in the home, in the kingdom. Women can lead, and they do lead, in meaningful ministry, in discipling, in worship, in counsel, in business. Women are capable, and we affirm it. Women are equal, we affirm it. So if you leave today going, that church thinks women are less, you didn't hear me. Now for the office of elder, we read the text and we say, this is what it looks like. So back to the question, why would we trust it? Why would we say only men are elders? So can I trust the Bible becomes the question. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed, he says, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed, meaning that while it is written and recorded by humans in a specific context, it's ultimately inspired by God, unchanging and eternally true and valuable for ongoing teaching. So here's where we're going to go. If the, if the Bible is God's word, not man's ideas or God's suggestions, but it's instruction from God for us. It's letters written from godly people to godly people, but it's God-breathed and valuable for instruction for all of us. And if God is the designer and we allow God to be the definer, then the question becomes, is he good about gender issues, about sexuality issues, about uh, different licentious issues? Can I drink? Can I eat meat? Can I eat? What, what are all the different things that people are like, I don't know what this really says. I don't know if I believe that culture says this is not right. The question becomes, can I trust God's word? And more to the point, is God trustworthy? Like even if I can't understand and see the formula, can I still trust the math? Can I trust the answer? That's what, so much of what God asks us to do. Faith is, is following something without the full picture. That's what faith is. And God is saying, I have the solution here, and even though you can't make sense of the math and the formula entirely, you can trust me. So if we believe the Bible is God-breathed and that God is good and trustworthy, then we have to humble ourselves and seek to obey whatever it's going to tell us. So specifically back to this teaching, which I said can be applied to any teaching that seems to go counter to the Bible, Kathy Keller says, there's one of three scenarios at play if you're going to reject this. One, first scenario, Paul made a horrible error and he taught an oppressive doctrine and therefore we can ignore it. That would be one scenario. This is dangerous because then what else can be ignored? And is it God-breathed or not? Because if it is God-breathed, then God preached a horrible oppressive doctrine. If it isn't, then what else isn't credible? That, that creates a whole pitfall that we walk down. She says the second one is this. Paul made a horrible error teaching an oppressive doctrine, but only for that context. So now we can ignore it. These are the same questions exist here. Plus, it adds another question, which is what else, what else can I write off when it becomes irrelevant to my cultural understanding? Question is, do we read culture through scripture or scripture through culture? Now, this is nuanced, and we would have a conversation about this. As, as we learn things through science, like, you know, we've learned that the world isn't flat, we would apply that factual knowledge and go, oh, well, that helps us illuminate this thing. But it's different than saying the culture says this is not good, so if it says that it is good, then I don't like it. And the culture says this is bad or this is great. We can't start going, I'm only reading it through culture. So it's a nuanced conversation, but that makes a ton of sense. The Ten Commandments, are those only for Israel or are those for all people? Oh. Grace and mercy, was that only for the first disciples or is that for everyone? And you kind of run into this challenge when you say it's strictly contextual. I'm going to leave that to that context and that context only. And there are places where that's spelled out in Scripture where that's clear. 
And there's other places where it's spelled out as more universal, and we have to be able to do the hard work of knowing the difference, which means we have to get into our Bible, which means we have to do some study or trust in experts who have done those study for us. Can we keep what we like and toss the hard stuff is what she's asking in that one. Third and final scenario, if we're going to reject it, is that Paul's teaching was fine then, but our culture has changed, and so we don't need to obey that anymore. This is the most dangerous because in this, the culture shapes our God. In this scenario, God is weak and bound to the whims of the trends of the day. So what other of uh, the teachings of Jesus can be dismissed because the culture suddenly disagrees? That was fine for them. It wasn't horrible. It wasn't oppressive. It was fine, but we don't like it anymore, so we're changing. What of Jesus' teaching can be dismissed the same way? What if Jesus' teaching are out of date? What if Jesus' teaching would be unpopular, would be countercultural, would be politically incorrect? So here's where we land on this one, but on the whole of Scripture is where we're aiming. Where we land is in accepting and obeying any Scripture. We are putting our trust in God to be good and just, to give us foundations for flourishing. The totality of Scripture, when we look at any of it, when we seek to obey any Scripture, we're putting our trust in God to be good and just, to ask good questions, to have good study, to have academic rigor, to go through the depths of it, But at the end of the day, the question we're really asking when we choose to obey, accept and obey, or reject and go our own way is, is God trustworthy? So Paul instructs Titus to establish elders, to be a covering over the whole body. Their job is to protect and and serve the body, to guard against the invading wolves that would tear apart the sheep. And so we live in a world like Crete, in a culture building, a kingdom of self instead of a kingdom of heaven. We have elders in our church, and we would affirm other local churches that have active oversight, not a board of directors, but active oversight to fight for the body, to fight for the church, to be healthy people, to keep the church in gospel shape, not only to encourage, but equip, to be the accountability and the cheerleader, to be the person there with you throughout the year, throughout the weeks, throughout the days, throughout the hours, to make sure that we are healthy and gospel-centered. When it works, when elders are rooted in humility and mutually submitted to each other, when elders lay their personal biases and agendas aside, the body is blessed. Jesus is honored and God is glorified. Glenn Packham, pastor, wrote this, and I want to read it as sort of a way to close. He's talking about elders and and church leaders, and he said, the source of authority determines its shape. The source of authority, authority determines its shape. And any of our authority as Christians, as elders, comes from Jesus. It is to be used as Jesus used his power, to empty ourselves in service and self-giving love. And as Paul would later write in Romans 15, as paraphrased in the message, Paul says, strength is for service, not status. So as we summarize, what does it mean to be an elder in the local church? Why do we have an elder board and what are they here to do? What is this about as we're organized in the way in the New Testament church was organized? That's how. First, we recognize authority comes from heaven. It comes from Jesus. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth is mine. That's what he said. So authority comes from Christ and nowhere else. Then, how do we use that authority that has been given to elders? And if it's anything other than the way Jesus used his power and authority, then we've done it wrong. Empty ourselves in service and self-giving love. 
Our strength is for service, not for status. So as we finish with this today, may that be true of our elders and our church body. As each of you leaders in our community, as each of you with influence, as each of you part of this body that makes up Christ incarnate in our world, as you seek to lead and live counter to culture on earth as it is in heaven, may each of us recognize where our authority comes from, where our power comes from, where our hope comes from. And if it's from Christ, then let us employ it in the way he's given it by the emptying of self, by the service of others, for the good of all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am uh, challenged by your word and grateful for your word. Father, thank you for uh, the wisdom of others who help illuminate. Thank you for uh, an order and a direction. Father, I, I pray for our church specifically our elders today. That behind the scenes overseers, it's not a position of glory or praise. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would keep uh, these men, their wives and family, Lord, you, would you keep them humble? Would you find them to be emptying of self, to be poured out for others, to be people of service, reflecting nothing less than your son? Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his example that we can follow. We lift him up today. We pray in his name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.